This is the Bureau of Lost Culture. Marjane Satrapi, Alan Moore, Neil Gaiman, Gilbert Shelton, Robert Crumb, Kelly Sue DeConnick, Marjorie Lou Hunt, Emerson. Some names there, known to most of us, I suspect, others not perhaps, but all figures, artists or writers, familiar to lovers of comics, cartoons and graphic novels. Along with the free press publications like International Times, Friends, Oz, Spare Rib, with whom they often interacted, comics, graphic art and illustration have always played an important part in the counterculture. As probably few people, more than Tony Bennett, our guest today, know. Now, it's not a subject that I'm particularly familiar with, and whilst that has never really stopped me talking at length about something before, in this episode of the Bureau of Lost Culture, I, Stephen Coates, am joined by someone much better placed than me to guide us as we flick through the pages of comics and countercultural history. So, Knockabout Comics, a UK-based publisher of the finest underground and alternative comics and graphic novels, founded in its first incarnation by Tony Bennett as a means to distribute Gilbert Shelton's hippie slacker masterwork, The Fabulous Furry Freak Brothers. Knockabout has published noted British talents such as Alan Moore, Hunt Emerson, Eddie Campbell, Brian Bolland, Neil Gaiman, Dave McKee, Martin Rosen and many more, along with US creators such as Robert Crumb, Linda Gebby, and celebrated creators from Europe. So very pleased to have Tony Bennett here with us. Hello, Tony. Hi. And to help guide us through, turntablist, musician, designer, and collector of all things countercultural, particularly vinyl and comics, DJ Food, Kevin Folks. Hello, Kev. Hi there, Stephen. Welcome, Kev. Welcome, Tony. So, Tony, we're going to dig in deep into the subjects of comics and counterculture. Dig deep into Knockabout and your life publishing comics. But it didn't start there, did it? Your life in the counterculture started in Brighton didn't it well actually you know give us a give us a quick whip through that I guess I I guess that's when it started I moved to Brighton in 66 Mm -hmm. um and uh was working with various alternative things going on down there um there's a thing called the South Sea Bubble was uh was like an arts labby thing right um because arts labs were a big thing weren't they in the the UK in the the 60s yeah in Birmingham and and London yeah Northampton yeah um and, uh, and then a, a bookshop opened, one of the, the first sort of radical bookshop outside London, Unicorn Books, run by um, uh, a guy called Bill Butler, who was a poet and writer. And um, and I worked there for a bit of time, designing some book covers, doing a bit of bookkeeping, and then gradually got more and more involved with them. And we were publishing books about uh, poetry books, books of alternative technology, um, books about uh, marijuana. Uh, and uh, so various and and the shop was selling all sorts of imported and countercultural stuff. So a head shop basically. No pre head shops. It wasn't no. It was only books. It was okay. a bookshop. So yeah. no bongs and black light no, posters no, no, no. and all that. No, this is pre bongs okay. really. The bongs only just coming. I think. <laughs> so. Yeah, Can so. I ask you something, uh, Tony? Which is that I've I'm always intrigued by, which is that. It's sixty. Say sixty six or sixty eight. Sixty six. Sixty six. Right. So. I'm always interested to know with people who were there at the time, you know, did you feel like there was something going on? We talk about the counterculture in the 60s and stuff and like, you know, whatever you want to call it, Age of Aquarius or sort of on the brink of a new society. Did it feel like that to you or were you just a young guy doing your thing? Well, we were surrounded. Brighton was like a mini San Francisco in some ways without exaggerating its importance, but it had that kind of 
feel to it. So there were lots of drugs, lots of alternative stuff going on, um, lots of things like food co-ops and um, alternative free schools and stuff like that. Um, lots uh, of squats? Lots That's, of squats, yeah. but also lots of cheap housing at that time okay. in, in the 60s. Uh, I think squatting didn't really get started properly until the 70s when, when there was more of a squeeze on housing. Okay. Um, so not so much squatting. Um, but it sounds like it was particularly in Brighton, and if you describe it as a sort of British San Francisco, it does feel like you were sort of in the heart of the county culture then, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it was just because it was by the seaside. Mm. That's probably one of the connections. <laughs> um, there was Indica Bookshop in, in London sure. and the Arts Lab in London. There are other things going on in London sure. as well. Yeah. But yeah, Brighton had a, 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 a large population of people, proportionate population of people doing silly things. And then you took this large leap right the way across country, in fact, into a different country, because you moved to West Wales. So yeah, we, we'd had problems at Unicorn with, with the... Uh, obscenity busts and things like that. J.G. Mm. Um, uh, Ballard's book we published called uh, Why I Want to Fuck Ronald Reagan. They didn't like that. And they <laughs> seized various other things and, and lost the cases at Unicorn. Um, we did manage to get a, a a little plaque made from the, similar to the College of Heralds, which said, uh, pornographers by appointment to H.M. the Queen. <laughs> um, and then... By the way, we're going to come back to this because this is a theme, actually, which runs through your whole yeah. career, isn't it? Exactly. About running into, yeah. running into exactly. problems with the law for obscene publications. And, but... uh, um, and then in the early 70s, uh, mainly driven by Bill Butler, we decided we were going to move to Wales. So we rented a farmhouse and farmyard and a few acres and moved out. They had a printing press in the barn. Was that was that an economic thing or something? Or um, it's quite a long leap from Brighton. It was partly sort of a, a community-based feeling. You oh, know, okay. want to go and try and do this thing, get right. away, move to the country was yeah. a big thing. Okay. Um, uh, they did it in the Freak Brothers as well later on. Gilbert Shelton wrote about it. Yeah. Um, and so we moved there, and we had um, cows and pigs and chickens, and mm. grew our own food and. And had a still so we could make really, really strong liquor and sit around in the evening trying to bind books that we'd printed and getting it wrong. Who, who is we? Or oh, who? we. So there were, I think there were seven of us. There was Bill and his partner, Mike. Uh, there was me and uh, my partner, Bernadette. Um, a guy called Malcolm Smith, who'd been at Unicorn in Brighton. Um, and... Uh, and then two friends of mine came in, Chris and Mary, to do... They were more farmers. They'd also fled to the country from London. Um, and, uh, and so they were doing organising the farming side of things. So it's a proper community then? Yeah. yeah. So we lived on not very much money. Yeah. And, uh, but making a living enjoyed. selling the books? Yeah. Mate, yeah scraping by. Scraping by. Yeah. yeah. Until it all faded away in... Um, 1975, I think, when okay. we got uh, into huge debt with the, with the people who'd been distributing our books, didn't right. pay us. And then you, you did publish a hundred titles, right? Yeah, something and like you that. Distrib- well, some of them were in Brighton right. before we went to Wales. Yeah. And you're distributing International Times, Oz, yeah, and Friends, Oz. yeah, all of those. Yeah. So you're very much involved with that. You had a link you? to them in London. Yeah. Well, first we were distributing in the southeast with with some uh, people called Frit Freight from Guildford. And so we were doing all the southeast distribution. We were doing festivals with um, Oz and IT, um, 
sort of in the late 60s through to... And when you say distribution, you were driving physically to the shops? Not at that time. We were mainly mailing things out. Okay. Then when, from 75 on, um, when it became clear that the Welsh experiment wasn't going to carry on, um, Bill and I drove all over the country to everybody who'd ever bought anything from us and visited every shop. And then we'd find out, oh, this shop only bought one thing. Right. <laughs> and then, and then we, I worked out a route. So I would drive all over the country from Plymouth to Stirling and Bangor to Canterbury and whatever um, every six weeks with a van full of uh, interesting stuff and convinced shops at that time. Lots of radical bookshops at the time still existed. Yeah. And, uh, and independent record stores. Yeah. So they were a big... Uh, and you had head shops by that point? Or head not? shops were just starting. Okay. Yeah, and yeah. you and you did uh, stalls at festivals as well? Yeah. Was that yeah, in the 60s so or in the 70s? The, the first festivals, I think, I guess, were, were in the late 60s, would be like the... Um, um, Pre-Glastonbury, though. Pre-Glastonbury. Yeah. yeah, a couple of years before Glastonbury. Okay. With all sorts of American bands and, um, and other English um, psychedelic bands. You're also publishing books on self-sufficiency, cannabis... Yeah, was well, the poetry books right? So can, all kinds of cultural stuff, right? And of course, let's before we forget, because you brought a copy with you, your own comic trip strip. Yes, yeah. You just <laughs> presented <laughs> Kev with a copy yes. of. It's amazing. Which is screen printed, you said. Yes, it's screen printed. Yeah. That at that time, obviously, all that stuff, um, Tony. You know, it, it's publishing books on cannabis and all that stuff. It's it's all quite fringe, isn't it? I suppose. So were you always getting in the tap on the door and you know the authorities coming around to have a peek at what on and doing. off i mean it was interesting as we went as time went through the 70s um we would import lots of stuff from america um drug books comics underground comics um uh, customs didn't really like anything with sex in them and would seize those and we'd go to court over that but they passed all sorts of drug books through they didn't seem to worry about that later on the obscene publications branch of the Metropolitan Police seized all the drug books because they wanted to use those <laughs> as a test case. Um, so, but uh, so yeah, different different, they, they, different they authorities. Then, did they then pass the sex books and just count, you know concentrate on the drug books? Yes. <laughs> yeah. But we're getting a bit ahead here, aren't we? We are because yeah. because that was after, an aside. You, after in, when when you were in Wales, you started Hassle Free Press. Uh, yes, because we'd been. Um, importing undergrounds, Zap Comics, Freak Brothers, and, mm. uh, at Unicorn in Brighton, mm. and distributing those as well, and other underground comics. Um, then when it became clear that... Um, and, and some of the Freak Brothers comics got seized by customs mm. uh, because somebody had complained about something. And um, uh, so I decided to start... get the rights to the Freak Brothers and started publishing the Freak Brothers mm. here. Well, no... I'm a newbie in this world of comics, but I even I know about the Fabulous Fairy Freak Brothers. But for anybody who doesn't, because it is a very important comic, isn't it? So just give us... It's the world's best-selling underground comic, by, by mm. far. Um, and what is it? What's it about? It's three slacker hippies um, who uh, smoke a lot of dope, take a lot of other drugs and satirise uh, the world. Gilbert Shelton's essence is that he's a master satirist of yeah. of, of politics, society. So, and people who um, are, let's say, um, uh, drug takers or people who aren't still enjoy them because they're funny. Yeah, it very very much starts out on the sort of classic stereotypical hate Ashbury hippie yeah. 
kind of trip, doesn't it? But yeah. then he takes it literally all over the world. Yeah. There's the classic Idiots Abroad story. Yeah, yeah. that's in here, um, which I'll leave with and, you this, this. Which is just uh, unbelievable. And yeah. um, So how did you meet Gilbert Shelton? Yeah, did yeah. You, or did you have, you know... Uh, um, I didn't meet him in 75 or so whenever mm. I started doing that. I met him a couple of years later. Yeah, I, I have a story that literally somebody told me only on Sunday, a friend of mine, a record collector, he said he was uh, hitchhiking around the UK in the 70s and he got picked up by an old hippie in a car and they got chatting as you do. You know, I don't know where they were going anyway. He said, what do you do? And he said, oh, I draw comics. And he said, oh, what kind of thing? And he said, have you ever heard of the Fabulous Fairy Freak Brothers? And it was Gilbert Shelton driving his books around and he had boxes full of the books in the back of the car and he was driving them around the UK to in, either go to bookshops to drop them off or to do a talk or sign. I think it was probably, was this in Scotland? Because he did spend some time friend, with his yes. wife driving around Scotland. He got invited up there to this do This is something. in 77, so maybe. I yeah. don't know. Yeah. Um, but yeah. What, and what and Gilbert lived in London for a year. Okay. okay. As well, when they were thinking of leaving America, because America wasn't good for underground cartoonists in some ways. Yeah. The same reason Robert Crumb moved from yeah. America. So, yeah, so Gilbert... Um, tested out the ground in London and Barcelona before eventually settling in Paris. Okay. Right, so you, you, you took on, uh, you know, we've got the rights for, for Free yeah. Brothers and started to distribute them. So that was, that's been your best-selling title, has it, down the years? I would or? think so, yeah, yeah, steadily, yeah. yeah. We don't do the thin, floppy comics anymore mm. because the market for those disappeared in many ways with, with the sort of demise of the head shops and the independent record stores. Mm. But you said as well, you, to, to get... People over. I mean, in the in the UK, there's a prejudice against comics in that there's a perception that comics are for children. On the continent and elsewhere, that isn't the case. Comics mm -hmm. are for everybody, and it's the, you know there's no children's comics, adult comics sort of thing. Yeah. There's not yeah. as much of a divide. There's a much yeah. freer attitude to sex and drugs. And you said that you got spinners put in spinner racks put into the bookshops to display your yes. stuff that set them apart from everything. Yeah, exactly. Else. So they didn't get shelved with the Beano or. Mm. 2000 AD or whatever mm. it might be they were completely separate yeah, yeah so we got those into Virgin Records and some Waterstones and Waterstones or Dylan's before which mm. was there before Waterstones yeah because you, your attitude to comics shops. is quite interesting from from what you were saying earlier in that you've you, you know you've got your comics market but you don't necessarily think that what you do is necessarily comics it's alternative culture yeah I would think so yes it doesn't I mean uh, only something like 10% of what we publish goes, gets sold through the specialist comic book trade. The rest gets sold through general book trade or through mm. the nowadays through the internet as well. Yeah. You also said, uh, Tony, that you, you, know, you actually had an active interest in bringing countercultural ideas to a wider audience. So, and of course, you, know, you love comics and you love graphic novels and stuff like that, but you, you know, you've chosen to go down this route of underground comics and some of them quite provocative and stuff. So tell us about that. You know, what is it that's motivated you down the years to choose that particular route for publishing? I, I like the medium of comics. I got to like the medium of comics through the undergrounds, really. I'd read the Beano and Topper and things when I was a kid, um, but I'd never been a great comic collector of Fantastic Four or Spider-Man or mm. anything like that. And then when the undergrounds came along, uh, I'd always like what how a comic works and it was the content the storytelling what you could write about in comics that was interesting more Expl real life really you know more real life and exploring boundaries and pushing at things mm. and yeah. well I, I, it would be great for both of you actually to talk about that i mean you know this this subject i know it's a massive subject but i mean you know the role that comics play in the counterculture what 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 opportunity do comics have 
I suppose, to be counterculture, which other, other ways of publishing haven't got? Well, you've got no budgets in, in that, in, in the same way as you've got with films, have you, with comics. You can, you can have a crazy sci-fi thing as much as, as the imagination allows. But I think what underground and alternative comics were doing was they were showing real life, whereas, you know, your regular comics like Marvel and DC and, you, and, you know, your Beanos and stuff, that's very much in a sort of fantasy world. And that's what I like about the alternative culture as well, is that you get the sex and you get the drugs and you get all that comes with that. Literally, mm. you know, that, that, that slice of life is, you know, showcased and parodied as well. Yes, and you get political commentary mm. and things that you don't get so much in other things. Um, so, and uh, uh, and if people could recommend, they're very assimilable as well. Well, I think so. Some people, I, I do offer things to people and they go, I don't know how to read a comic. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, you just need to learn how to do it. And then you yeah. can know. But they appear... How do you do it? <laughs> it's, it's a zigzag, isn't it? It's left a zigzag, to right, yeah. Left to right, left to right. Um, it seems obvious to me, but yes. it's, if you if you haven't grown up with it, it's no. quite difficult. Oh, absolutely. I mean, my son reads manga. One of my sons reads right. manga excessively, and he's just started to write, read British comics, some right. of my collection, and he says it's very different. He says yeah. people die really quickly within a couple of panels, don't they? Whereas in, in Japan, <laughs> you know, you've got space. multiple panels where the action happens and it's slowed yeah. down almost. Yeah. yeah. So... The other thing I suppose really is that in terms of this uh, countercultural service that you're offering, because publishing stuff which is about drugs, which could be information based, mm. right? So guide to a lot of it was, yeah. Right. So you were actually providing a service, right, as well. Well, I mean, we were doing it, both. So yes, yeah, so, so we'd be producing books about how to recognise psilocybin mushrooms, mm. um, the psychotherapy and LSD. Um, how to grow your own marijuana instead of buying it from the mafia. Um, <laughs> I exaggerate. Um, you're still probably still doing that. Um, and uh, at the same time as doing things like the Freak Brothers, which were taking piss out of the, that same culture. Mm. Right. So, okay. So um, there is that kind of, uh, uh, you're, you're, you're bringing a kind of social, a social benefit, right? So you're informing people and we all know, well, maybe we don't all know, but we think we generally agree that information is better than, uh, uh, yeah, prosecution. Yeah, definitely. Right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and and at the same time, there's a kind of like entertainment thing to it as well. You said here also that uh, comics may be ephemeral and low art, right? But, Somebody else's description, not mine. Right, but of course you also say that um, you know graphic novels have been given Pulitzer prizes and Guardian book awards. So there, it is maybe is it is it the UK that's a bit sort of funny about comics? I, mean, oh, I think it is definitely. Yeah, there's definitely yeah. still a perception from a large proportion of the public. It has changed over time. Um, you know, you, you you can't ignore writers like Alan Moore anymore. You, mm -hmm. you haven't been allowed to ignore him for probably three decades now since Watchmen, and you know he's in the Guardian just the other day because he's just done a book deal with Bloomsbury or whoever, you know, for sort of a, a four-volume fantasy series. You know, that's he's up there on par with, you know, other writer, any other writer, any other well-known writer, you know, J.K. Rowling or something. And do you think it's the partly the efforts of people like Tony that's made that happen, that that shift into kind of, you know, I would have, I would have more definitely, serious acceptance? Definitely in the UK, I would say knockabout for the alternative and maybe... Um, what Paul we used, Gravett. Paul Gravett, who is um, you know, heavily involved with the Cartoon Museum and, and there was a very good exhibition of comics uh, just about four years ago, was it? The mm. British Library? Something yeah. like that, yeah. And, the, and, and, you know, 
IPC with 2000 AD, what was IPC? It's now Rebellion. Um, you know, they've pushed forward, you know, in the, in the sphere of UK comics. And a lot, of pe- a lot of people who came out of the 60s and 70s, writers like Pat Mills, who started off with 2000 AD and, and um, you know, they've, they've come from the 60s. And actually, actually, they were more, more from the punk era, weren't they, really? Yes, I um, think that's true. Yeah. The, you know, they were sort of the, the new angry young men. Yeah. And, and I think Adam probably straddles that, that sphere as well, doesn't he? He's, yeah. Obviously, he's a little more hippie than punk. Yeah. But, you know, he, he comes from that counterculture, absolutely. Um, but, Tony, you know, we, we've already sort of touched on it. You've had quite a few run, run-ins with the law. And the quite interesting thing for me in all that stuff is that there's a sort of censorship, strange censorship story which hasn't been told, isn't there? Because a lot of your kind of run-ins with the law seem to be on the basis of sex or drugs, right? But when it comes down to it, you've successfully fought some cases and not so successfully fought others. But we consider ourselves, don't we, in this country to be... Not a place where we have sort of censorship. It's not like the Soviet Union was or something like that. But in fact, as it turns out, that is not the case, right? It's partly because it's comics. To that that thing of them being mm. for children, for children, low yeah. art again. The same in America and here. Uh, America's uh, f- freedom laws and parody laws are slightly better than ours, so they haven't been. Uh, comics have got busted in the states. Yeah, so customs didn't like lots of things. Um, so we'd. Uh, I went to court quite a lot of times so what happens with customs they uh, some boxes of books come in they don't like them they seize them and then you have to take them to court within 30 days um otherwise they just destroy them so most people just ignore it so pornographers generally ignore them and just get some more in Mm. hope it gets through so i took them to court lots of times and uh nearly always lost in magistrates court or stipendary magistrates court um because they couldn't see that there was any value in the things that um, I thought were, were, were fine for adults to read. Well, hold on a minute, right? First of all, so you, you decided to take them to court, which most people didn't, they couldn't be bothered, it, 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 right? So why? I mean, first Well, of the all. Customs Consolidation Act of 1888, mm. um, you, you forfeit the goods. It was to do with um, a contamination law to start off with food, but then it had, if you had um, a, a Bible in, in a case of books and other ones were pornography then everything was <laughs> the yeah. bible didn't save it um but since it was a forfeiture thing you had to then stand up against them and i was not happy that they were seizing the things so i would go and contest so there's a point of principle here yes, right for you so. not just a financial one but more of a sort of uh you know idealism of yeah. like, you know this this yeah. shouldn't be right this isn't right yeah yeah and so you made the quite um, strange uh, and unprecedented uh, step of befriending the customs officers. Yeah, I thought that's the way to do it, is not to... Because you, you get... They're very strange, not like the police. They don't obey laws in the same way a policeman has to obey acts such and such. Mm. Any customs officer can seize something that comes through customs. And if he doesn't like it... It gets seized, and you have to go to court. So it's purely subjective on the Completely on the subjective. point of the customs officer, and it's potluck of what you get. A, a on lot, what day. yes. A lot of customs officers at point of entry are on the conservative end of the spectrum, mm. including the Seventh Day Adventist who seized Robert Crumb's "My Troubles with Women" at Heathrow Airport, who refused to work Sundays. Um, <laughs> at um, but, so yes, I befriended customs and. and 
got in touch with people at the head office of Customs House and uh, and would then import one copy of something by mail, give it to them and go, what do you think about this? Do you think this is okay? Can we get it through? Is this a goer? Is this a goer? <laughs> and they go, no, yes. And then we could import 500 copies or 1,000 copies or whatever right, so instead that, of losing them all. Right, seemed, that sounds very pragmatic. That was, it was pragmatic. Yeah. yeah, but at the same time, there's something kind of annoying about it, isn't there? I mean, it's like, what sort of... You know, setup is it where somebody, Seventh Day Adventist or not, can just make a completely random decision about wh- whether they think something's objectionable, and then it destroys all your stuff. Absolutely ridiculous, because mm. it's not a law as such. It's, it's as I say, subjective. The people at head office were not like they were much more sophisticated mm. and more worldly wise and pleasant. And I think doing this, giving them the single copies of things, um, gradually chipped away at the attitude that filtered right. down. Mm. At least there may have been some leniency there, you know, and at the least they know who you were de- you, they were dealing with. Yeah. They, you, they weren't dealing with a pornographer. Yeah, they were dealing with a publisher who actually had the best interests of his publications at heart. There was we used to import um, two magazines from Spain, one called El Vibra, the Viper, and the other one called Kiss Comics. And Kiss Comics was just pornography, completely. It was just a sex comic. Mm. Um, El Vibra had some sex in it so I'd send both to um, Helpson says obviously and we go through them together mm. and they didn't notice the sex in El Vibra because there was only a few pages of it because the other one was all sex so they passed all those with no problem at all <laughs> you didn't ever grease any palms like send a didn't few have to, you know no. bottles of wine or anything no like they were they were they were in a state of shock a lot of the time they're very nice I'm not knocking they were very pleasant but mm. but they didn't know what to do with it. Well, me. of course, a lot of what you were importing was quite radical for for the time. Yeah. Even today, certain bits are shocking yeah. still. Um, and most people wouldn't ever dream of seeing that in the form of a comic. Yeah. So I imagine for them back in then, the 60s and 70s, they didn't have a clue. And you said certain certain people would read them. And even when they were prosecuting them, they stated they didn't understand them. Yes. They couldn't Yes, actually... there was one, one case I think I mentioned was it with, with a, a comic called Omaha the Cat Dancer. Which is, which is basically human bodies with cats' heads having sex in various ways, um, and uh, was defending that in court. And uh, the prosecuting uh, barrister hadn't read it. The customs officer who got it didn't just like the cover. The magistrate refused to read it all the way through, and they were making a decision about destroying them. And you've you actually um, that's in knockabout issue four, isn't it? You actually this is, I think, um, is this first. The comic the is... The first story, ABCs it, yes. And they, you actually depict that scene at one point, with a, possibly you in the dock. Yes, I think we do, um, yeah. Or is it, is it you and uh, Carol? It was, with... yeah, Carol, my Right, ex-wife. so you went, so Knockabout went self-conscious then, actually, at this point, and you started well, we to make, raising... work about your own lives. Yeah, we're, so we... We're we... getting a little ahead, but yeah. Knockabout 3 got, got prosecuted, didn't it? Got yes. seized, and, and then on Knockabout 4, the obscene issue... Yeah. Uh, you started to sort of talk about it within the comics. You know, what was going on outside the comics became inside the comics. Yes, so, so yes, yeah, so, a better description here. Customs Officer A seizes copies of a comic, um, uh, bizarre, sex, bizarre Sex Number 9, Omaha the Cat Dancer, which the title did yeah. it, didn't it? Customs Officer <laughs> B prosecutes the comic, which he cannot understand. Mm. Um, Magistrate C condemns the comic, she refuses to read all the way through. She is confused by the mixture of feline and human attributes. 
and it's when we had a conversation about is Mickey Mouse a real mouse or not yes yes and you you ended it by saying well i've never seen a mouse that looks like that. yeah and then my solicitor said stop talking now yeah. <laughs> very sensible and did you win that case in no the, you didn't no you also brought up the subjects of wind in the willows which may not yeah. have been, may not have even though it's a completely rational thing to do yeah may not no. have been the best no, thing at no, the moment no, yeah. exactly. particularly moment um uh, it's interesting what you say that about that sneaky way of getting things through that's obviously you've been a tried and tested method i did i did an interview uh, a few years ago with uh, mikhail karlik who was a, def- a soviet film director in the 60s he defected in the end a lot of his work got uh, censored but actually that was his technique because obviously every kind of film you know script or uh had to be submitted to the censor yeah. before they'd agree to make it and stuff. So he'd put some very obvious stuff in that he knew they were going to seize upon mm. and get the red pen out and say, you can't do that. Mm. But the more subtle stuff, they didn't which is obviously yeah. sneak yeah. it through. You know, yeah. you, I mean, this is the problem with censors. They, the world is very black and white to them. They don't mm. see any grey, yeah. mm. so they don't notice the subtlety. Yeah. yeah. Uh, winding back slightly, because we're into the 80s, aren't we, we, with what we're talking about now? Well, that was 70s and early 80s. Okay, okay. The 80s becomes the... gone. Yeah, well, I was going to say, um, you started off with hassle-free press before Knockabout, mm-hmm. didn't you? Which was, that was what you set up to distribute the fabri- fabulous... Fabri- Freak Brothers fabri- and, Brothers. and various other things. And yeah. did you, so you you didn't then import those over to here, you printed them you printed in the them UK. Here, yeah. You got the rights yeah, and you yeah. printed, because I've got versions from the, yeah. the San Francisco publisher and knockabout yeah. over here. And um, another thing that happened uh, was you must have somewhere along the way met Hunt Emerson, who uh, was working at the Birmingham Arts Lab. Yeah. Um, and who you've pretty much, I think, published most of his work. Yeah, I guess. From the 70s through Probably done about 30, 30 of his books. Yeah. So who's and, Hunt Emerson? Hunt Emerson, to me, is basically the nearest thing we have to Robert Crumb in terms of... a. UK underground alternative cartoonist who is maybe not as self-referential as Crumb is and as self-biographical, but he has a body of work, a very distinctive style and a breadth of of, uh, material, which is definitely approaching Crumb's. Robert Crumb Uh, being the American, probably the most famous underground comic writer. Undoubtedly, yes. Yeah, Uh, and with Gilbert Shelton, probably not very far behind as well. But people know Crumb's name more. They do. Hunt Emerson should be incredibly famous. Yes, but isn't. But sadly, isn't. No. And also, incidentally, he designed the Beat Girl for the Beat Band from the late seventies. You know, the the scar, the little logo that the the, the, The the, dancing girl, the dancing girl for the Beat, because he's a Birmingham lad. Right, but um, tell me about. Did you ever go to the Birmingham Arts Lab? Yeah, yes, yeah, lots of times. Because um, Hunt uh, was at the Birmingham Arts Lab in '76, something like that, mm. in the mid '70s, and uh, they were printing comic books there. Yeah, with his yeah. chum Dave Hatton, who had a printing press. Yeah, so they were printing Arzac comics, which yeah. had some of Hunt stuff in and various other things, poetry and books I, as well. Yeah, and yeah. I was distributing them around the country because of the distribution thing I had going. Right, and so that's when I got to meet Hunt, and then gradually. Uh, yeah. Collected various collections of hunts. Yeah, because my my first that's an early one. My first uh, intro to British underground comics and knockabout was this book, the Big Book of Everything by Hunt Emerson, which is a collection of various underground things he'd already done, yeah. some new bits and po- yeah. pieces put out by Tony. And inside it says, um, you know, copyright by um, knockabout, and then at the bottom it says. Um, still available thunder dogs and many more right for catalogue so i didn't know what this was i was living down in surrey i found this in a bookshop in crawley and thought this looks amazing um 
what is all this stuff? You know, I was reading 2000 AD and, you know, I'd read Star Wars and all that sort of stuff. This looks amazing. And it opened up a whole new world for me. I thought I must find this Thunderdog, Thunderdogs. First time I went to London, I went to Forbidden Planet when it was in Denmark Street. Have you got Thunderdogs? Yes, over there on a spinner rack. <laughs> right. <laughs> Thunderdogs is in there. Yeah. Knock about every yeah. issue that you've done up until yeah. I was like, what's all this? Zap Comics. All of that stuff was on the spinner rack. There's the undergrounds over there. You know, I it gave us a high profile having I'm, those spinners. I think it really it helped. Did. It set you apart because you yeah, weren't yeah. hidden in comic boxes. Yeah, you were out yeah. on the floor, completely yeah. visible, yeah. and um, yeah, that set me down the path. You know, that's interesting. So actually, the underground comic, in some ways, has got more to do with like the free press stuff that had been in the late sixties and seventies. Oh, very IT much. Very friends much. Friends so. and stuff well, more I mean, than I, actually I, the kind of Marvel. Oh, much. Yeah. 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 It Oz friends all mm. ran. Freak Brothers comics yes. and other comics, yeah. because that was part of the, that was part of that same free press thing. And there right. was a thing called the the underground free press syndicate. Is that what it was? UFP. Anyhow, whatever. Some letters like that, um, which meant that if the people in San Francisco, at the, the rip off press making Freak Brothers comics, let them out to go be published, um, people in Chicago doing their comics, they could all swap them around for, mm. for no charge. So people could. So the East Village other could publish something. Yarrow Storks mm. could publish something. So it all took. It was all free. See, yeah. Miles told me about that actually. Barry Miles, because he was when he was at IT, he yeah, was, yeah. talked about that. So stuff, and that's of course you know lots of the beat stuff was coming through yeah, the same yeah. sort of thing. It got published in yeah. San Francisco and then get published here. And it's an, that's an amazing thing in itself, isn't it? That people would work like that internationally. Can't imagine. Oh, definitely. Now, and also, you know, the Robert Crumb stuff in Oz was what took them to court wasn't yes. it the obscenity case yeah. from Oz was a Robert Crumb cartoon yeah. of um, well it was actually a collage wasn't it of Rupert yeah. Bear um, doing something yeah. <laughs> quite quite rude to uh, I think you can you else. can mention it on okay, air I yes. think um, um, I can't even remember the, the full thing but it was Rupert Bear, Rupert Bear with a, a fairly large penis Shagging somebody. Well, I mean, the, mo it? the most exaggerated thing about the character was he had a bear's head, but you know, <laughs> he but did have the penis, penis as well. And then there was the um, who was the girl, the the picture of the girl that he had. Honey Bunch Kaminsky, what That's... a little yummy, who he married. Yes, <laughs> she Aileen was quite young. Crumb, yes. Aileen. Yeah, and yeah. that was a sort of mascot, wasn't it, for the trial? Yes. But it was very obviously a sort of um, prepubescent schoolgirl type yeah. um, thing, and. Um, yeah, that was that was well. It was one of the main things that came up in the yeah. trial was a Robert Crumb, and obviously that would have been published because of this free association of of reprinting yeah. other. And, and there were there were several things like nasty comics, and nasty tales, nasty tales, in, yeah. in the late sixties, which yeah. just freely reprinted yes. all this stuff, not in very good quality, unfortunately. Yeah. And um, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I, I suppose yeah, you would have seen Hunt stuff at the at the. Um, Birmingham Arts yeah, Lab. Yeah, the Arts and Lab, then, yeah. And, and, and you went on to do many things with him, like like some of the classics, like uh, Lady Chatterley's Love. Yeah, which I'll come on to in a minute if we've got time. Yeah, yeah got Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, I think, is one of his best books, which is the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner poem, but uh, with Hunt's added humour to it. Yeah. It is absolutely yeah. stunning. Yeah. Tell us um, why you love it, because you've got it here. I mean, obviously um, on radio so nobody can see it, it's, but it's, so it's, a, it's, it's, it's a rather... Glorious. <laughs> it's glorious. It's extremely funny. It's full of puns. The albatross takes pages and pages to die after it's been shot. Um, yeah, because I don't remember the rhyme of the ancient mariner being that funny. It's not funny at all. <laughs> and it's really doggerel kind of poetry. Coleridge yeah, made up yeah. this sort of cod, old-fashioned language which he wrote in. Um, but it is absolutely glorious. 
So trying to get rid of the albatross, which after his, after he's <laughs> yeah. got falling off his neck, takes pages. Oh, he's got a superb storytelling style, Hunt Emerson. Yeah, uh, incredibly funny. <laughs> you know, lots of completely wordless panels and things, yes. which just do. And he he worked for everybody, didn't he? He worked for Penthouse. He did comics for Penthouse. Uh, no, Fiesta. Fiesta. Sorry, yeah, for yeah. the Cat. Yeah, things yeah. like that. You know, he was he was, and he's you know, and the Beano. Quite highly yeah. sexual <laughs> in places as well. And the Beano as well. Yeah. Who, who did yeah. he do in the Beano? Uh, he started off doing Little Plum, um, which was used to be Little Plum, your red skin chum, but they changed the, the yeah. second bit of the name. Um, and then he did various other things in Beano. I, like f- I like the way that uh, the, your book there is, is attributed to Coleridge and Emerson. On the yeah. Side. Well, yeah. We, in fact, when, when, when Hunt would sign, I don't know, this one signed, sadly, we'd have a, we had a rubber stamp of Coleridge's signature as well so you could have that <laughs> so that was all in public domain by the time that point oh yes you, I mean, you, you he wrote it 200 years ago yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, which i'll explain about that in a minute yeah um so yeah we had lots of court cases about sex then and in the mid 80s if we can stay on censorship for a bit sure. yeah um the obscene publications branch came round and raided the warehouse and took away everything they could find with drug references in some freak brothers comics other comics Dope comics, cocaine comics, the kind of obvious. Yeah. Um, lots of marijuana growing books, books about um, coca growing in in uh, uh, Colombia. Hold um, on a minute. I mean, under an anthrop- anthropological book. Under what law? A, a test case under the Misuse of Drugs Act and the Obscene Publications Act to see if books about drugs could be seen to deprave and corrupt. Turned out they couldn't after we'd been in. So we had a big. Uh, so they kept the books for nearly three years. Which is a part of the punishment is to try and put you out of business by doing that. Mm. Um, So then we were on trial at the Old Bailey for about a month and we had expert witnesses. So most of the trial was about the effects of cannabis. So you'd have um, uh, an expert witness for the prosecution from the Maudsley Hospital in South London saying about what damage it caused to people. Then we'd have a professor of psychopharmacology from Oxford University on our side arguing about other things about cannabis. I sat there in my um, suit with little hot rock dope burns down the front of the bit. I hadn't <laughs> noticed till later. Um, not saying a word the whole time. Um, at one point, one of the you, best... Because you've been advised by your counsel not to? Yeah, yeah, because I had fabulous... I, had, I have a brilliant solicitor who's a, who's a friend of mine and uh, very good barristers. So um, uh, Brian Capstick was the lead QC and then uh, a young Jeffrey Robertson was the, his oh. junior at the time. Um, he became very famous later. Didn't he? Yeah, he did other things for us later. So was uh, that was your your brief's advice to let them dig their own hole? Or? Yes, and they did. And the jury, who I think were probably some of them, some of them baffled by some of the detail that was gone into. Mm. But, the, but the jury were obviously enjoying it and wondering why it was happening at all. Mm. Um, kind of a break from murders and, and yeah. all the rest of it, right? Yeah. And so at one time, the foreman of the jury came into court and they don't normally come to make jokes. And he said to the, to the presiding judge, um, we've just noticed that today there's a horse called Magic Mushroom running in the 330 <laughs> at Lingfield. Should we put any money on it? <laughs> Or should we bring the horse in? Yeah, yeah which is be, probably about the forbidden. only only joke told by a jury at the old Bailey ever. Um, so that was, anyhow, we got oh, so just to make the story a little bit wider, when they they seized all copies of seventy two different titles, um, but they said that's going to take much, six months to go through at the old Bailey. So we'll we'll select fifteen, which we agreed with, to go forward to the old Bailey. 
We then got acquitted completely, having raised money with things like this and that the, other the trial, trial special, special there. Yeah, which is hard. Because um, it was going to do benefits with um, Victoria Wood and um, Billy Bragg and Benjamin Zephaniah and Tony Allen and, and John Darry and other people. Um, to wow, raise money for the cost. This classic raise, 80s, isn't it? And we had you know. this, the, the right to read campaign and right to read button badges and so on. Mm. Anyhow, so we won. There was also some other people who'd been importing drug books as well who got seized by the police and they were going to have a, a copycat case just after hours. Their legal team argued that we shouldn't be allowed to publicise the result of our trial where we got acquitted on every title because it would prejudice their trial. I, I haven't spoken to these people since. Um, I argued about this furiously, saying it's a trial about censorship. We've just won. They probably won't go ahead with the other trial if, <laughs> if we publicise. So we put all this effort into it and people had raised mm. money for mm. us. And so it never got any publicity. Oh, and the other people, when they got done, they got off on every title except one. Mm. So it's... Um, oh. So actually... And, sorry, it's a terribly long story... And then the books that were left over about three months later, they gave us back the ones that had been at the Old Bailey. They said, oh, well, we're going to take these to a magistrate's court, the ones that were left over from the 72 that they'd selected the 15 from. So they took all the other titles to a magistrate's court where we had various creators and artists standing up and saying, then we, we lost there. Oh, so that was a bit... Damn. That was them. Didn't want, they didn't like losing... Yes. But, I mean, you, you had some supporters then. So, I mean, because it, it is a sort of fairly fundamental rights issue, isn't it? Freedom of speech. Yeah. So you, 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 you had backing. Because I imagine it's not cheap to fight these cases. No, it isn't. Apart from it, and it, and it takes your time. time as well. It's your time, right? I reckon I was spending a day and a half a week doing legal right. stuff for about mm. two but and you, a half But years. people rallied around. I mean, you mentioned a whole cast of characters yeah. there. Yeah, and uh, had had been able to have the publicity after, after the acquittal, right. it would have been quite a famous case. Right, like the Australian was. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And how did you meet Alan Moore? I'm interested in... I'm obviously, he was writing for 2000 AD... Probably, the 80s. probably met him at comic conventions then. Right. Okay. And, uh, and he was something. sympathetic to the counterculture, presumably. Yeah, and he wrote something for a couple of the knockabout anthologies at yeah. times. He's in here, Bits, isn't he? he? might be in there. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah, it's on the front cover. I think yeah. he writes a forward. Um, you know, uh, and he's got da you've got David Gibbons in here as well. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. Went various people. Do Watchmen and various yeah. things. And, and you've, I mean, you've published various things from him over the years, haven't you? Including right up until the present day, Jerusalem. Yeah. And um, the end of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Yes. Uh, which yes. From is, Hell. Uh, from Hell. From Hell was yeah, much yeah. earlier, yeah. But, I mean, he Alan bowed out, famously bowed out of comics a couple of years ago um, yeah. with the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which yeah. Tony published the final sort of six issues, was it, I think? Uh, yeah, we did. Well, we did volume three and volume four. So oh, the, cent you? the century volume, which was, the, oh, yes, was volume three, right, and then yes. Tempest volume yeah, four. Yeah, Tempest. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, he fell out with DC and whatever. That was a cult I'm going to read that out. This is the trouble with censorship is that some people wouldn't read a comic even if it was banned. Yeah, <laughs> very good. Um, <laughs> but on the subject of censorship, because you you have got you mentioned uh, Lily Chatterley's lover over there, okay. right? Now, of course, that had been itself been the subject yeah. of a. <laughs> Obscene publications. Which is why we did it. Right. So okay. um, after this trial, we thought, what's the next book we're going to publish? And we went, it's got to be that, because this is the first book published under the modern Obscene Publications Act, which came out in 1959. And uh, so we thought we'd do that. So we took out all the social commentary, all the political comment, 
and just kept the sex really pretty much and the plot <laughs> kept all the plot and the sex in it i remember that getting a fair bit of press at the time yeah it did definitely yeah yeah you know and for some reason this second edition or third edition well, we had a strap line across the top which said not for sale to wives or servants which is one of the quotes from <laughs> the uh, original trial <laughs> I've not left it off so uh, we're going to kind of keep circling back so, so have they left you alone now um, until now? Until, do they still keep knocking on the door no not until not from the mid 80s until the mid 90s when this book My Troubles with Women by Robert Crumb uh, which we published we published it in 1990 um and uh, put it together. It's, it's, it's story, all stories, various stories about him and women. Um, all of them true, presumably, as well, yes. or in some way yeah, biographical, yeah, they're, autobiographical. They're so autobiographical. Yeah. And we'd run out of copies, and we'd sold some to um, uh, our colleagues in San Francisco, Last Gasp Comics. And uh, so five years later, we imported 500 copies from them, and they got seized at Heathrow Airport. And so I said, but for, um, for their pornographic content. So I said, yeah, there's two panels showing sex in um, out of a, about 600 panels, um, which is, is what this, they didn't is this like. The, is the penis touching the lips? Yeah, but it is in here, but it wasn't <laughs> wasn't in the rest. Of it. Um, and um, if it isn't, it's all right. I wrote to Customs and, and said, look, this book's already been on sale in England. It's it's on sale in Waterstones. It's on sale in W. H. Smith's. Mm. Well, I think it was all various places. And um, uh, and and it's been reviewed in the Guardian and the Times and wherever else. And they went, never mind. And that was the Seventh Day Adventist was the person who seized it. So they still had to follow him. Right. So we went to court just for a day with Geoffrey Robertson as a QC and uh, and various experts on our side, including Paul Gravette, the comics expert, and yep. a couple of other people. And uh, we went out and bought some top shelf magazines from the local WH Smiths showing nearly oral sex. And the prosecution barrister kept going, is the penis touching the lips? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it didn't go well for them. The magistrates went out for about 10 minutes and came back and said, get out of here. Acquitted. And we yeah. asked for costs. Right. And customs don't pay costs. They don't like that. Right. So we got all, by that time, Geoffrey Robertson was earning three and a half grand a day or whatever, you know. Mm. So we got all our costs, which, which customs were furious about. Did you get the books back? Oh, yeah. You did. Oh, that's yeah. good. But then Customs wrote us, which I don't have a copy of, unfortunately, here, uh, a letter saying what sex acts could be shown in comics from then on. Ooh. So basically a, a version of the Comics Code for the UK, maybe. Indeed. Yeah. Yes, you could have light bondage, but not heavy bondage. You could have you could have pretty much everything except bestiality and, and, and paedophilia. Yeah. So. I mean, no, I think that's fair enough, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. That's that's but the interesting thing is, actually, of course, is, is that you, you, um, you know, because you're doing it independently you are and you've got all these resources as in people who support you you're resilient enough to, to survive it but of course for other people we knocked them out i don't know if kev remembers this but we had barry kane yes uh in this is a couple of years back when we we're talking about uh, flexi discs and yeah. barry published flexi pop magazine mm -hmm. which became very very successful mm. um and um he went away one weekend and left it in the hands of, I can't remember his full name, but actually Mark Manning, Mark Manning. also known as, uh, Zodiac, a, as a, a Zodiac Mind Warp, and, um, who, who did a shoot up in King's Cross with a goth, gothy band. And it was sort of... Now, wasn't it Depeche Mode? It was somebody like Someone that. Like they were that. covered in sort of butcher's meat. And there was all, it was, it was a bit S&M anyway, but it went and of course it was sold in, in W. Smith. And what happened is, is that a granny in Blackpool, I think, 
Barry said. Yeah, bought it for Went the... in, bought it for her granddaughter. Got it home, thing. and of course, yeah. Granny opened it, and then there's this sort of centre spread of these kind of... It was a photo story, goths, wasn't it? photo story, yeah. kind of covered in red meat and all this sort of stuff, and complained to Dublin Smith. They pulled the magazine, and that was it. It was done. Yeah. Yeah. That was the end of Flexipop, a very successful magazine. Yeah. Bang, out of, out of action straight away. So you, your, your actual independence, your the fact that you currently in underground, actually gave you the resilience, right? You, well, yeah. It didn't kill you. Viz magazine did a good thing with WH Smiths. They uh, got pulled from where they were with other things and, and suddenly put on the top shelf because mm. they suddenly thought it had ad hoc. They didn't like Johnny Fart Pants or whatever it might be. Mm. I don't know. They the didn't like it. Yeah. <laughs> so they put it up on the top shelf. So the next issue of Viz, on the back, there's people doing semaphore and it says, fuck off, WH Smith, you bunch of cunts. <laughs> that got through fine. Yeah, um, Tony, was there anything that you decided not to publish? Uh, I mean, not f- because it wasn't any good. No, I don't think so. it was so. Too, too risky. No, I don't w- think or so. would have got you in trouble. No, no. No, I mean, there's a limit to how much you could publish. It's a very small mm, organisation, yeah. you know. So, but no, you didn't, you didn't decline so. anything on it because you're worried about the content. content. Was it with dealing with Crumb? Did you deal with him personally? Yeah. Or, or yeah. his publishers? Because yeah. you've only done a couple of books. You've done the Blues book as well, haven't you? Yeah, we did, um, we did a sort of series of three. There's My Troubles with Women, then Our Crumb Draws the Blues, and That's Our it. Crumb's America, which is a political one. Yes. So the Blues one, yes. all music stuff, and then America political yeah. politics. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then a couple of other things after we did the one of him and his wife called Drawn Together, where they draw yes. each where they each draw themselves about their life, which is incredibly explicit in both yes. sexual <laughs> and um, putting yourself out to the world terms. They're yeah. S- yeah. unbelievably honest. Yeah, unbelievable sort of and, sex and, scenes between the two of them that they've both drawn and and, and the rest of their life and their arguments and things yeah. which most people don't do yeah they, you know they're they're quite upfront aren't they you know oh, they're yeah. very promiscuous but it's all within the confines of the marriage yeah but one each yeah. knows yeah. you know and also gets jealous of the other but yeah that is quite eye-opener and also what's quite interesting about that is it's not something that you could portray really in any other format is it that combination of the sort of the well, image and the well, you brutal autobiography like that, right? Yes, and, and what they do as well by drawing each other mm. in the comic, and they've mm. got very different styles. Obviously, mm. I mean, Aileen, Aileen is very simplified, isn't it? And almost mm. like she changes from picture to picture. Mm. Was Robert is Robert and yeah. does what he does, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, and but Robert Crumb's career is about himself, large by and large, you know. And, and I don't think that any cartoonist or or, or, or comic artist has done what he's mm. done. Never. I think most most novelists don't put so much of Never. themselves. Um, Philip mm. Roth a bit, perhaps, but you know, lots Maybe. of people don't put so much of themselves on the page. Mm. Yeah. Another one I wanted to ask you about, which was I don't know if it was exactly a bestseller, but which you did a book with Liam ba- Leo Baxendale called Thurp, which I think is pronounced. Yes, <laughs> uh, because actually the name of the village he was living in in Gloucestershire as okay. well, which is okay. spelled T H R R P or something ridiculous. One of the most bizarre comics I've ever it's... read. Leo Baxendale, Bash Street Kids, um, Minnie the Minx, various things for the Beano that became famous. Yeah, a legend of British kids' comedy, yeah. uh, humour comics. So when Leo came along and said, oh, I'd like Knockabout to do a book, I went, yes, that'd be nice. Yeah. And then he said, I won't sh- I showed one page or something, he said, I won't show it till, till it's finished. I went, all right. <laughs> and when it came along, he went, oh, oh, this isn't quite what we were expecting. Because <laughs> it was very... Strange. It's very strange. It's it, as I've got a copy at home, but I don't think I've read it more than once. It's 
are just a collection of characters just sort of basically blowing raspberries for the whole book. Isn't Pretty it? much. There's not really a story <laughs> there. Much. But it's Leo Baxton. <laughs> yeah, he had been... Uh, it had not been working much for seven years where I'd been fighting DC Thompson over rights to his characters and mm. work. And uh, so he was in a bit of a... Pickle. Yeah, unusual state. He was in a but pickle. But you published, nevertheless. Well, we printed 15,000 copies because we'd already <laughs> decided to do that and because we sold about 1,000. <laughs> yeah. So. yeah. I bought one. Good. <laughs> well done. Well, you know, uh, we're actually running out of time here, guys. So, right. so Kev, you've got okay. a couple of things with you. Anything that you want to sort of highlight I, to Tony whilst you're here? I think we've covered quite a lot. Mm. Uh, I wanted to go into the sort of comics boom of the 80s because obviously you switched mid-80s from and after the trial um, thing from the sort of not regular small floppy sized yeah. comics into the the larger A4 sized mm-hmm. graphic novels shall we say anthologies for Knockabout and subsequent publications and yeah. very much I think anticipated the graphic novel boom of the end of the 80s how did you fare because I know Knockabout didn't exactly fare well off of the comics boom ultimately and you you did you go bankrupt at a point no, in the no, early nineties, really. or you wound things down? Well, a bit? yeah, we, we were still recovering from the court case in the mid eighties, right? Okay, and uh, and then us and Titan Books were, were sharing distributors that was getting graphic novels into into bookstores, right? Because at the end of the eighties, with 90. with things like Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns and Mouse. Vendetta, you know, Mouse uh, certainly was there was suddenly comics of aren't for kids, shock horror, yeah. you know. Um, articles everywhere in the press and you know things started to change and get taken more seriously and as a result you start getting comics shot stocked in graphic novel form in bookshops which is now part of the course yes. and i think knockabout definitely probably benefited from some of that because that you started getting your stuff into bookshops yeah because the know. other outlets for the for the floppy comics for the didn't exist so much anymore so mm. we were doing everything's books well, you probably not only benefited, but you probably contributed to it as well, right? In terms well, yeah, of... I was going to say, I think you probably, you know, one of the instigators of getting things into bookshops mm. anyway. But, you know, I wondered how you fared. Did you did you see a resurgence towards the end of the 80s? Yes, yeah, yeah, around about 1990 there was, yeah. Right. And then okay. it faded away again a bit until the early 2000s. Yeah, there was a buffed, bust about 93, yeah, 92, yeah. wasn't there? Whereas it was, yeah. the, the, the whole medium was so overloaded because everyone I had jumped on the bandwagon. This was a problem. This was just a technical problem with one of the distributors who was giving bookshops 30 or 50 copies of individual titles mm. when they were probably going to sell five. Mm. And they went, oh, mm. we can't sell these. And so it all sort of just collapsed on yeah, itself yeah but i mean now comics have become particularly some editions they're super collectible right some definitely yeah superhero yeah. comics are yeah so, our, oh, okay. our, our, our comics are not collectible i just want people to read them yeah well you you've remained a lot of stuff has remained in print i wouldn't i yeah. wouldn't say there's necessarily a collectible edition of any knockabout yeah. stuff is there because you've remained in print no you know yeah um, i don't think so what's your warehouse like uh, our warehouse is now out in the Fens in Cambridgeshire. It's not my warehouse anymore. It's somebody else's, my mate Steve Robson's warehouse, who's also a small publisher. He publishes Fanfare. Um, and so it's uh, so it's all out there. But you said to me earlier, you're never happy then when you're rooting through a car. I know, well, I was. You see, that's why I kind of miss the warehouse now that I work from home. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you get your Knockabout books today? How, if someone wants to find Knockabout, where do they go? Uh, they either go on... on online to Amazon or Book Depository or right. other places like that. Okay. Uh, we have a distributor called Turnaround who are a sort of alternative distributor who do a lot of um, gay and lesbian culture, black culture, yeah. um, various modern fiction, 
uh, successful stuff and 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 quite a lot of graphic novels. Okay. And so they have a sales uh, team that go around the country and and they provide all the all the also. So we don't yeah. do that direct okay. anymore. But you can find it. You can go on. You've got a Facebook page, haven't you, for Knockabout? Yes, yes. Um, you've yes. got you know mail order. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I'll yeah. put links to those in the show, show okay. notes. But I mean. Tony, what's next, or what's going on at the moment? Uh, what's, what's going on at the moment? These are the late, last two books I think we did, were they? Scotland Yardie, yeah, um, which is about a Jamaican <laughs> copper who comes to um, uh, Brixton to help out with uh, policing there. He, huge he has split. Jamaican no, rules to no, no subtlety with that. No cover. subtlety, yeah, no. And a giant joint. And it's it, and, and it <laughs> also fe- it also features Boris Johnson and lots of other satirical things. Bobby Joseph has put lots of other things in it. In fact, before Johnson became prime minister, and and uh, this is a much more serious book, Mongrel, uh, this good. woman's first um, graphic novel okay. about growing up in mixed culture, Bangladeshi English culture, mm-hmm. getting disowned by her family and uh, and struggling with being between two cultures wow so so i think between those two it sort of still covers the sort of same sort of range you're still pushing the countercultural spirit um tony what's yeah. the sense of it yeah tony goes yeah it's a terrific <laughs> ending i thought <laughs> yeah well i'm not quite sure what to say now yeah. uh but there we go i think that's it i think we did it so the countercultural comic life of Tony Bennett. Thanks for coming to the Bureau of Lost Culture, Tony. Thanks for inviting me, Stephen. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, great. And Kev. Yeah. Nice to see you again. Indeed. Thanks for coming to. Well, thanks for the intro to Tony, but also to come and sharing your wisdom about the strange definitely. life. Yeah, and of for comics. reading the right comics. It's been definitely illuminating, hasn't it? Totally. Yeah. So there we have it. I should also say that Tony brought with him a wonderful treasure trove of. Knockabout comics and graphic novels, which uh, Kevin and I sort of squabbled over before distributing and rushing off with. Uh, what a lovely man and what a great story that was. Thanks to Kev uh, and to Tony. I'll put links to both of them in the show notes. And thanks to you for listening. Another wonderful romp, I thought, through some aspect of counterculture and a little bit of a hidden story, not forgotten, of course, yet, because Tony is still at it. Um, I hope you enjoyed that and all episodes of Bureau of Lost Culture, which, of course, are now on all major podcast providers. If you enjoy it, do leave us, leave us a review. We'd appreciate that, particularly on iTunes, actually, whereas it helps people know about it and of course at Soho Radio and at www.bureauoflostculture.com Thanks for listening Next time I'm Stephen Coates